I'll first say thanks to all the uh, men who came out yesterday to help shovel and move mulch. Uh, I don't know about you, but my back's killing me. <laughs> but it was, it was a lot of fun, I think. <laughs> uh, anyway, thanks a lot for coming out yesterday, helping with all that. <clears throat> Let's listen to the Word of God. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar, and His word has no place in our lives. Thus the reading of God's holy word. One of the reasons you choose 1 John when you're teaching introductory Koine Greek, which is the Greek of the New Testament, is because it introduces you to most of the main grammatical difficulties of reading Greek. And these are presented to us here in these few verses uh, and is indicated by the number of if clauses... (laughs) which are conditional clauses. And there are a variety of conditional clauses in New Testament Greek. And in this paragraph, you're introduced to the rules of if in New Testament Greek. And it's something that causes many a soul to be crushed and to give give up the ministry (laughs) Uh, and sell insurance. Anyway... Uh, I persevered, and as have many others, but nonetheless. So this morning, we want to continue to examine these opening verses in 1 John. And some of these, of course, would be familiar to many of us, but some of us may not be that familiar with them. Either way, we're going to have a lot to learn from these passages, and I include myself in that as well, because they are both profoundly theological and eminently practical. That's right. Theology can be practical. In fact, good theology is essential to good practice. So I want to break the passages down this morning in the following way. First of all, uh, having the right presuppositions is essential in the Christian life. Secondly, building your practice on those correct presuppositions is essential. And thirdly, building your expectations on the correct presuppositions is essential to the Christian life. So having the right presuppositions, building your practice on the right presuppositions, and building your expectations on the right presuppositions is essential to the Christian life. Or to put it another way, dealing honestly with God requires dealing honestly with ourselves. In other words, not misrepresenting ourselves to ourselves. Dealing honestly with God requires not misrepresenting ourselves to God, which would misrepresent God to others. Dealing honestly with ourselves and God makes it possible to grow along with others. Namely, it produces, if you will, an essential characteristic of faithful living which is humility, not misrepresenting ourselves to other people. So let's start with the importance of not misrepresenting ourselves to ourselves. Charles Spurgeon once said, Men invent fictions, God invents facts. 
One of the biggest fictions we invent is our version of ourselves. Let me repeat that. One of the biggest fictions we invent is our version of ourselves. We forget that we are prone to live in the world of appearance, forgetting that God sees things as they really are. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or in the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So here, John uses a series of five if clauses to lay a very important basis for the Christian life, if the life is going to be an authentic Christian life. Notice the first if clause here in verse 6. He says, If we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. And then again in verse 8, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then again in verse 10, If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar. Who? God, that is. And His Word has no place in our lives. So there are then three basic misrepresentations of ourselves to ourselves as well as to God and to other people. And along with these, he gives us what we might call complementary truths. That is, the opposite of this and the corresponding blessing that flows from that. So there is what you might say almost a a logical progression here, a natural progression, what we would call an inexorable logic. It's like dominoes that have been set up and created to fall in a sequential way. So it starts with a simple misrepresentation, which then consistently applied leads to self-deception and ultimately to the blasphemy of making God the liar and our version of the truth the truth. So recall, if you will, that really started back in verse 5. That God is in light is light, and in Him there is no darkness. So here, all the evidence points toward the absence of light and the presence of darkness, doesn't it? That's what these passages are telling us. There's something dark there that isn't part of the light, and that's the problem. In 1 John 1, 6, he says, We claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness. We lie and do not live by the truth. Remember here... John is not writing his letter to unsaved people. He's not writing his letter to people who've never heard the gospel or have rejected the gospel. He's writing to Christians, to believers. As I said before, he isn't trying to scare us. He's simply trying to make us aware, to become aware of who we are intended to be and what in us keeps us from being what we are intended to be. So all we're really doing is then here claiming one thing and yet simultaneously doing something contradictory. That's what he's saying about our tendencies. The claim, in other words, that we make about ourselves is simply a front, an image. We're claiming to be something we're really not. The most common word for that in the Bible is hypocrisy. It's most often motivated by what? By a general 
need of approval, a fear or rejection, a loss of approval. In other words, it's motivated by our pride. We're too proud to admit that we aren't what we pretend to be, that we aren't the image we project to other people. Our pride keeps us from being able to do that. And at that level, the person is most likely aware they are pretending. It's when you don't know you're pretending that you're in real trouble. But most likely, this person is aware they are pretending. In other words, they are consciously aware of the private me and the public me. And what is required for, to, for us to be successful at that? And what is required is that we are lying. We are lying. We lie and do not the truth, as John says here. Now, the verb he uses here for walk, to walk in the darkness, as opposed to walk in the light. The verb he uses here that's translated walk is in the present continuous sense. Why is that important? Well, a better reading of the verse would be this, if we consider the present continuous tense here. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet habitually walk in darkness. In other words, there is a pattern of behavior. However, there is also an habitual misrepresentation of the truth. Because that verb claim in verse 6 is also in the present continuous action. In other words, if we habitually claim to have fellowship with Him, yet habitually walk in darkness. So how do we do that in a successful way? Habitually walk in darkness and habitually claim at the same time to be having fellowship with Him. How do we accomplish that objective? By simply downplaying sin, minimizing sin. In other words, we start, well, I remember once many years ago, I was doing a, an internship in a little country Presbyterian church. I won't say what the denomination was, but a little country Presbyterian church <clears throat> before the EPC was founded. that help you? Okay. Anyway, and so we met for prayer before the church service every Sunday. And the con no one ever confessed sin. Sin was not a word we used. I say we, they. So what they would say would be, God, forgive us for our mistakes. God, forgive us for our errors in judgment. Well, that is a far cry from what the New Testament describes us as being and doing. Because that then leads to what? It leads to false statements about ourselves and actually beginning to believe the false statements about ourselves. In other words, self-deception. So rather than acknowledging our sin, we simply made false judgments, bad judgments, mistakes. So we are simply people who make mistakes. In other words, we allow ourselves to be released from the reality God wants to show us so He can change us. So we really begin to believe the lie we're telling ourselves to ourselves 
that we really aren't what we really are. We actually then begin to call darkness light and light darkness. This is what would be classically called living in a state of denial, a denial of the truth. And it takes all sorts of various forms, like blame shifting. It's not me, it's you. Or lowering the threshold of what even counts as sin. In verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. How in the world, ask yourself, how in the world is it possible for us to claim to be without sin? How is it possible to claim to be without sin? That's what he's asking. Apparently, people are doing it. How can we claim to be without sin? How simple? Simply redefine sin. I'm not an alcoholic. I just enjoy my liquor. What's wrong with that? Well, it's a question of degree, isn't it? Do you need the liquor or you simply enjoy it occasionally? We simply redefine things. We say, everyone does this, so it couldn't possibly be that bad. Or, if you were married to my husband, you would too. People who go to church and people who would never darken the door of a church do the same thing. You don't have to be a Christian or religious to do this. You can be a person who doesn't have anything to do with formal religion and do this. The person who isn't involved or connected with formal religion in that sense simply repeat the crime, if you will, so often and believe they are the only God to whom they are accountable, that is themselves, that in the end, up means down, right means left. Because you are your own God, and you can decide what is or is not the case. If you're a person who is religious, who does go to church or synagogue or wherever, you would be doing what? You would be focusing on the performance of certain rituals, accepted social practices. In other words, you're committed to behavior modification. No, no lying, no cheating, no stealing, no getting drunk, helping the poor, being a nice person, and attending church regularly. But in the end, whether you go to church or you don't, you're doing exactly the same thing. Because in the end, both of these people think they are okay. And both are really self-deceived. So we misrepresent ourselves to ourselves. Secondly, dealing honestly with God requires not misrepresenting ourselves to God, which misrepresents God to everyone else. What do I mean? You see, in the end, this kind of self-deception ends up making God to be a liar and Christ's death unnecessary. According to verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What truth is not in us, is he saying? It's the self-deception that we have no sin, which makes everything Scripture say about sin and its consequences a lie. And that, according to John, only confirms the fact that we don't have the truth. In other words, we're first sinners. And then we sin. Sinning doesn't make us sinners. Sinners sin. 
In verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. Think about it. To say we have no sin is to imagine someone, to imagine yourself as at least somewhat free from transgression and its penalty despite failure to give full acknowledgement to Jesus Christ. Obviously, John is disputing such a self-justifying confession. You see, to claim to be without sin or to be exempt from its consequences has universal implications for Jesus' death for sin. You see, anyone who claims not to have sin is in effect saying, no thanks to the Heavenly Father. No thanks for the offer of forgiveness of sin through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. No thanks. I don't need it. Secondly, it's inconsistent with the testimony of the Old Testament to the radical fallenness of human beings. Numerous passages, one might even say innumerable passages, insist that everyone has sinned. Genesis 8, For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. I can say amen to that. 1 Kings chapter 8, If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. Job 4, can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? The answer, of course, is no. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Paul had read the Old Testament, obviously. In Proverbs, who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. Answer, no one. Ecclesiastes, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So you see, the precepts that we derive from these passages are simply a crystallization of the entire Old Testament, starting in Genesis chapter 3. From an original pristine creation has now been marred by sin, and that includes you and me. In other words, dealing honestly with God requires not misrepresenting ourselves before God, which misrepresents God and His truth. Lastly, dealing honestly with ourselves and God makes it possible to grow along with other people. In other words, I can stop lying to myself about myself and stop making God into something He clearly isn't. And I can can stop lying about myself to other people. I said earlier that along with the falsehoods that are clearly exposed by John in these verses, there are other promises and complementary truths. Truths which we never gain access to, we never derive benefit from, if we continue to live in deception. See, John wants to open us up to the powerful truths that are available to us. And when we shut down the way he's describing it, we no longer have the power that comes from those truths. Well, look again in verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son purifies us from all sin. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In other words, to walk in the light 
as He is in the light, makes fellowship among ourselves and with God the Father and the Son. Absent that, our fellowship is not what it's meant to be. You see, what is light? We talked about this last week. Light is simply equivalent to exposure. Exposure. In other words, light reveals what would be otherwise hidden. So because of the work of Christ, the light now shines on those who have come under its cleansing power. You see, all that's wrong with us, sin, is now atoned for. Now I don't have to be a hypocrite anymore. I can escape the ravages of sin. I can't escape all of its consequences, but I can escape, ultimately, its destructive power in my life. Notice what he says here. Christ's blood cleanses us from all sin. That is, sin as a whole, which condemns me, and sin in part, that breaks fellowship with God. He can take care of all of that. So in other words, I'm now accepted by God in Christ. I'm justified. I'm declared righteous before God. I'm legally adopted into His family with all the rights and benefits that are attached to that. And I can now walk in the light of His grace, which was revealed on the cross of Calvary. I can now be purified. I can now be changed in my experience of that grace. That's what he's describing for us in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In other words, what does he mean? He is faithful and just. In other words, God is faithful. He is the one who keeps the promise. He promised us he would do this. He has kept his promise. And because he kept his promise, I can now be changed and transformed. He can do so because forgiveness doesn't require him to forego His holiness and His purity. In Romans 3, Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Remember, the God we're talking about is light. There is no darkness in Him. So now I can confess my sins to this holy God without fear of being rejected. I can stop creating fictions for myself and live in the reality of His light. I can now admit that I am not what I ought to be. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silence, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I too, you too, can pray like David without fear. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. In Psalm 51, David notes that God desires truth in the inward parts of who we are. 
So David's prayer is for what? It's for a pure heart and a steadfast spirit, a willing spirit to obey. Now, what's required? What's required for that? Well, Charles Spurgeon once said what's required is honest dealing with God. Honest dealing with God. In other words, to confess our sins is to see them as God sees them. God does not see our sin as mistakes, errors in judgment. How does God see our sin? In other words, see them in their full significance, in the light. So we confess both the inward and the outward parts of it. We acknowledge, in other words, both both the cause and effect of it. Listen, grace is only available to people who need it. Grace is only available to people who need it. Grace is only available to people who need it. Grace is only available to people who need it. How much do we need it? For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. So rather than hide, what do I do? I confess. Psalm 28, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. You see, our sin is huge, but our Savior is bigger. Our sin is huge. But our Savior is bigger. Luther once put it this way. We are real, great, hard-boiled sinners. You must by no means make Christ to seem petty and trivial to us, as though He could be our helper only. We want to be rid from imaginary, nominal, and childish sins. No, no. That would not be good for us. Christ must rather be a Savior and Redeemer from real, great, grievous, and damnable transgressions and iniquities. Yes, from the very greatest and most shocking sins. In brief, from all sins added together in a grand total. He goes on to say, You will have to get used to the belief that Christ is a real Savior and that you are a real sinner. For God is neither jesting nor dealing in imaginary affairs, but He was greatly and most assuredly in earnest when He sent His own Son into the world and sacrificed Him for our sakes. You see, we must get rid of this, uh, 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 this, rid of this erroneous idea that the longer I walk with God, the less I'll have to repent. This is a myth from the pit of hell. The longer I walk with God, the more I will repent. You see, according to the Scriptures, if that were true, the longer I walk with God, the less I have to repent, I would be living in denial of the truth about my heart. And that's what is meant by walking in darkness. It's a form of self-deception. And it's a temptation for everyone in this room. You see, greater and greater awareness of the depth of my sinfulness is a sure proof of walking in the light. In other words, the the longer I walk with Christ, the more confession of sin I must be doing. Because the light is spreading to every corner 
the darkest corners of my life, and it becomes more intense the more I know him, the more of his light I know, and the more of his light reveals the darkness within me. And in the process of doing all of that, what we've been comparing, we've discovered that we've been comparing ourselves to the wrong thing. We compare ourselves to the wrong thing. We go, well, I'm not, you know, Pol Pot, Joe Stalin, Adolf Hitler, Hermann Goering. I'm not like those guys. I'm not like some serial killer. I got news for you. You're comparing yourself to the wrong person. Compare yourself to the right person. You see, everyone in this room, myself included, is drawn inexorably to cook the books. We are all criminal accountants. I always make myself come out looking better than I am. Unfortunately, God will examine the books. And He's examining the books every day. And unfortunately, He can't be fooled. So we've got to stop cooking the books in our favor. Stop comparing yourself to your spouse because you're going to always come out the winner. And the more you proclaim you don't, the more you reveal you do. John Piper said, put, puts it this way. He says, <clears throat> our joy is that we are forgiven. Our grief is that there is still so much sin remaining. You see, the greatest evidence of grace is the degree of brokenness and awareness of our sin produced. After all, it's the broken who draw near to Christ. It isn't the whole. Jesus said, I came for the sick, not the well. The well are full of pride and self-deception. I come for the broken-hearted, the one who beats their chest knowing and compared to God. I deserve the worst. Because it's the broken that Christ comes near to, not the whole. Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian in the 18th century, said, All true spiritual knowledge is of that nature, that the more a person has of it, the more is he sensible of his own ignorance. You see, all gracious affections that God wants to produce in my life and in your life, all gracious affections, those things which are a sweet odor to Christ, that fill the soul of a Christian with heavenly sweetness and fragrancy, all of those gracious affections are broken-hearted affections. They're broken-hearted affections. You see, a truly Christian love, either to God or men, is a humble, broken-hearted love. See, the desires of the saints, however earnest those desires might be, are meant to be humble desires because their hope is a humble hope. Their joy, even when it's unspeakable and full of glory, is a humble, broken-hearted joy that leaves the Christian more poor in spirit you see, the poor in spirit have an accurate approximation of their true standing before God. Without that, you'll never be poor in spirit. I'll never be poor in spirit. Because this is the spirit of the child, the little child, the weak child. This is the person who's disposed 
to universal lowliness of behavior. Paul says, this is foolishness to those who are perishing, but the power of God unto salvation to those who are being saved. Let me conclude with this. How does everything we've just learned determine my expectations of other people? How does what we've just learned determine my expectations of other people? Think about any relationships with other people you might have. Not just marriage, but any relationships you have with other people. Everything we've just said is essentially illustrative of what? Of how the gospel is meant to work in my life and in your life on a daily basis. Our problem is us. Our problem is sin. Our problem is my sin. We are the problem. And if we own up to that on a daily basis, it will keep us humble. And you have to be humbled to be humble. Ask the humble man, were you ever humbled? Oh, yeah. Being humbled produces humility. Because being humble makes you brokenhearted over your sin. And there's so much of it. And what's true of me is true of my wife, your husband, my parents, your children, your friends, anyone you have a relationship with. Because in relationships as in spiritual matters generally, I know this is going to be hard to hear, but in relationships, whatever they might be, marriage, family, it doesn't matter. In spiritual matters generally, failure is the key to success. Failure is the key to success. Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And let me tell you, weakness always involves pain. That is what? The pain of self-discovery. You see, what I discover is not very pretty to look at. And if you add another person into that mix, voila, you multiply the potential pain involved. J.R. Miller, a great 19th century pastor, once said, Left to ourselves, we are prejudiced in our own favor. <laughs> Amen. We are very charitable and tolerant toward our own shortcomings. We make all manner of allowance for our faults. And we are wonderfully patient with our own infirmities. We see our good things magnified and our blemishes in a light which makes them seem almost virtuous. So true is this that if we were to meet ourselves someday on the street, the self God sees, even the self which your neighbor sees, you probably wouldn't even recognize it as yourself. That's how easily self-deceived we are. We wouldn't even recognize it as really us. That's not me. Yes, it is. You see, our own judgment of our life is not unmistakable. There is a self which we do not see. And the reason that relationships are so painful and yet potentially wonderful is because it's an opportunity to have the gospel applied. And the gospel is always, remember, a combination of bad news and good news. 
What is the gospel? Well, Spurgeon said, It begins with an acknowledgement that we are more sinful than we ever thought ourselves to be. And at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hoped for. You see, we're so sinful. How sinful are we? Well, it took the death of God's Son to atone for my sin. And we're so loved that He was willing to do it. You see, trust, truth, and love are combined in the gospel. And it's the only kind of relationship that will ever really transform us. Truth and love. You see, truth, love without truth is simply sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about who we really are. And truth without love is harsh. It gives us information, but in a way that we can't really hear it. We can't really absorb it. You see, God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthness about who we really are and also radical commitment and love to us at the same time. So we are called to live relationships in the light. And the merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and to repent of it. So conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and rest in God's mercy, His grace. The hard times in your marriage or your family or any other relationship you have the hard times drive us to experience more of His transforming love. But a good marriage, a good relationship will also be a place where we experience more of this transforming love at a human level. We begin to see it in people. So the gospel can make it possible for us to, to handle it when someone fails to love you the way they were supposed to love you. And that frees us to see the other person's sins and flaws to the bottom and speak of them and yet still love them, accept them fully. And so by the power of the gospel, that other person experiences the same kind of truthful yet committed love and it enables them to show us the same kind of truthful and transforming love. That's the great secret John is exposing to us here. Through the gospel, we get both the power and the pattern for the, the journey that we are called to follow in life. In 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it is not proud. In other words, it doesn't have to have the last word. It doesn't have to win every argument. Pride is what? Pride is simply comparing yourself to someone else that benefits you. In other words, you're comparing yourself to the wrong person. You see, humility comes from comparing ourselves to the right person, God. And so Paul says, love is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Think of the power in that. Karen's grandmother, one time she went to visit her, and she was going to uh, use the pickup truck. And so she was backing the truck up, and she hit a tree. 
And the first words out of her grandmother's mouth were, I told your grandfather not to plant that tree. <laughs> now, he'd been dead for 40 years. That tree was real old. She remembered 80 years ago telling him not to plant that tree. Now, that's funny, but it's really sad because we do the exact same thing. It may not be a tree planted 40 years ago, but it's a harsh word spoken 40 years ago. I mean, let's be honest here. In Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? And let me tell you, He knows more of your sin than even your husband or wife knows. As long as we keep scorecards in relationships, we, in effect, walk in darkness and not in the light. Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. How can you keep a record of wrongs and at the same time be considering someone else better than yourself? It's a contradiction. It's self-deception. It's pride. It isn't broken-hearted love. How in the world can we consider others better than ourselves? By seeing our own distance from God and not someone else's distance from God. You see, keeping a record is pointing out how far the other person is from the standard. You are far from the standard. You see, the secret of a successful relationship is broken-hearted love. That's what the gospel is teaching us in these passages. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the power of the gospel. We thank you that it does change lives, that it is the great combination of love and truth. The gospel tells us the ugly truth about ourselves, but it also weds it with the great love that rather than condemn us, redeems us that's the good news of the gospel may its power spread in our families in our marriages in our relationships both at work or at home wherever it might be that we too would recognize the distance we stand from the great beauty of god rather than comparing others thank you for the grace that's available to us through your gospel and we pray this in jesus name amen